break 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 you are now listening to breakthrough news You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back with you here in The Punch-Out 6-4-2021. Very happy to be closing out the week with you. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about the quote-unquote reforms to the Texas power grid in relationship to February's cold snap that were just passed there in that state. We're going to talk about the Iran nuclear deal. It's a lot of talk that perhaps the talks, not to be too redundant, are going quite well. So we will check in on that. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we are going to start with the NYPD's massive, pointless camera network. A new Amnesty International investigation has revealed that the NYPD is operating a massive network of at least 15,280 cameras across Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn alone. These cameras also employ facial recognition software in order to allow them to track people across all of the various boroughs. Amnesty's effort involved 5,500 volunteers to document these cameras, and it's still actually not done mapping the entire city, including in the boroughs already mentioned, which reflects the extent of this big network. So far, the most surveilled neighborhood is East New York in Brooklyn, where Amnesty documented 577 cameras. 54% of residents in East New York are Black, 30% are Latino, 34% live in poverty, and at one point last year, it was also the neighborhood with the most COVID-19 deaths in NYC. According to Amnesty, these cameras are able to capture activities in the surrounding two blocks of where they are placed, and since they're often placed at intersections, that gives them a very significant range of view. And the research done by Amnesty has raised concerns among many for a few reasons. One principal one being that facial recognition software has a long history of being racist. Research from 2018 concluded that some facial analysis algorithms misclassified Black women nearly 35% of the time, while nearly always getting it right for white men. A federal government report from 2020 on the same issue noted that when testing the number of false positives from a range of various forms of facial recognition software, there were, quote, 10 and 100 times more false matches for Black women than white men. So between 10 and 100 times more false matches for black women than white men. That same report noted that overall, the majority of the algorithms they tested performed worse on black, Asian, and Native American faces and show bias against women, the elderly, and children. The report noted directly that this was a best-case scenario, too, since they were only including higher-quality pictures when police agencies are likely to include in their database all sorts of lower-quality camera photos from, you guessed it, just the type of cameras like the ones in the NYPD's mass network of cameras. 
There's also the ethical question of whether or not the police should be able to operate an unaccountable, opaque system that can track the movements of almost everyone at all times, particularly given their long history of racism, abuse, and surveillance of protesters. Now, the police, of course, would say, well, look, we have to do it. It's the best way to solve crime. But when you look at some of the fourth quarter crime statistics from the NYPD itself, that's certainly a questionable claim. In Brooklyn, where, as we mentioned, the most surveilled neighborhood is, the NYPD only arrested a suspect in 33% of murders, 13% of vehicle thefts, and 49% of robberies. So less than 50% in all of those, despite this massive camera network. There are also other anomalies that speak to this issue of the efficacy of the cameras. For instance, the only borough in New York City that made an arrest in over 50% of homicides was the Bronx. But of the boroughs studied, the Bronx has the fewest cameras. Now, this isn't academic, but cuts to the core of the issue around quote-unquote defunding the police. Yesterday, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman spoke at a press conference in the Bronx and demanded increased investment in violence interruption programs in that borough where they're already having a significant effect. For instance, one aspect of the program that they were speaking to called Stand Up to Violence uh, is a program that conducts interventions with those who come in with gunshot wounds, since those most likely to be shot are also those most likely to be doing the shooting. And the program measured how many people who participated in the program ever came back with another violence-induced wound. They found that those they treated were 52% less likely to return than those they did not, showing that it clearly is having a significant impact in curbing violence. A 2017 study into the efficacy of violence interruption all across New York found that these programs created a 63% reduction in shootings and a 37% reduction in gun injuries in the South Bronx and a 50% reduction in gun injuries in East New York. So the question is, should we be investing huge sums of money, billions of dollars into policing practices that don't seem very effective and certainly are racist or public health ones that are not only not racist, but actually effective? And especially when you're talking about the issue of shootings and murders, that address the issue before people are hurt rather than the police would just show up afterwards. But should we be investing in those sorts of public health programs or these billions of dollars of policing programs that seem to not be as effective as advertised, among other things? Now, of course, it's never presented that way by those who deride defunding the police, but it's really the key question that has to be answered in addressing the issue of policing. <laughs> Despite talks being stalled, there are all sorts of upbeat comments coming out of at least the European Union and Iranian negotiating teams at the Vienna-based talks to revive the Iran nuclear deal. As Politico reports, quote, Enrique Mora, the European Union official overseeing negotiations, told reporters on Wednesday he was sure a deal would be struck at the next round of talks expected to start on June 10th, end quote. And further that, quote, Iranian Deputy Foreign Minister Abbas Arachi shared this positive assessment, telling the Iranian broadcaster IRIB that the next round of talks in Vienna logically could and should be the final round. Now, on the other hand, the UK, US, and German negotiators were much more reserved. State Department spokesman Ned Price stated that the next round almost certainly would not be the final round of negotiations. In reality, the sticking points in the negotiations that have sent everyone back to their capital cities for consultations uh, at the latter end of this week make it clear that the two sides are actually quite far apart and 
really only likely, only really likely to grow more far apart on this issue. Now, from the very beginning, as we've argued extensively on this program, the demands of the United States would be almost impossible for Iran to meet. The U.S. has demanded that Iran, quote-unquote, return to compliance with the deal before it lifts any sanctions. And indeed, the talks are hung up on the, quote-unquote, sequencing of steps that each side would take in a gradual rollback of sanctions and return to the deal. But the issue is really a key issue for Iran because Iran was never out of compliance with the deal until very recently. They were repeatedly certified as being in compliance. The U.S., however, unilaterally pulled out of the deal, did everything possible to undermine it, and the EU, while remaining in the deal, refused to actually carry out its obligations. So, last year, Iran started enriching uranium to a higher level, but, by the way, not high enough to actually create nuclear weapons, and also curtailing the access of investigators to their nuclear facilities in a limited way as a pressure point to try to jumpstart the deal again and get it going. Now the U.S. is essentially asking Iran to act as if they were the ones out of compliance and not the U.S., or in other words, to humiliate themselves and grovel to return to a deal that they, in fact, never broke. Further, the U.S. and European countries have demanded something that is clearly just never going to happen. They want a commitment from Iran to join new talks designed to limit their scientific capability and change their foreign policy. Now, that clearly is just not going to happen. Beyond the fact that they were just very unlikely to impede their own sovereignty like that in the most general sense, it also is just yet another attempt to force Iran to make deeper concessions as if somehow they violated the initial deal. It is very clear that what the U.S. in particular is looking to do here is more or less have their cake and eat it too. They know the Iranian elections in a couple weeks are sure to deliver a president who will not be willing to prostrate themselves before the West to get a deal at any cost. And the negotiations will ultimately at that point be over, even if they continue. And this is really what they want. When you think about the way that they have erected these obstacles from the very beginning of the talks, it's clear that the Biden administration doesn't seem that committed to Trump's maximum pressure policies on Iran, but they want to reserve the right to ratchet the pressure up and down as they please without being tied to the broader framework of a deal. So while there are plenty of diplomatic phrases being used to dress these talks up, nothing happening so far is suggesting that they really are just much more than an attempt to kick the issue into the long grass, more or less kill the negotiations, and continue a policy of extreme hostility towards Iran, but one that's easier to manipulate, perhaps, with world affairs and events. Well, I'm sure we all certainly remember the cold snap that hit Texas in February, leaving millions of people without power and creating a massive crisis that also endangered clean water supplies and, of course, took lives. In the wake of that crisis, there were major criticisms of Texas's free-for-all electricity market that clearly was the culprit for why the grid failed so massively. Politicians in Texas vowed to take action. And, well, they did take action. In the just-ended legislative session, the government passed so-called reforms that put the burden for addressing some aspects of the crisis on average people and just totally bypassed other crucial issues. The legislature passed a law requiring power generators and power lines to be weatherized to protect against cold weather snaps. In the original version of that bill, there was a $2 billion fund created to help pay for that. But that fund was stripped out in the version that passed, which means that those companies will have to pay for it themselves, meaning, of course, they will pass that cost on down the line where it will ultimately end up on the consumer's utility bills. And more directly... 
The legislature also allowed gas companies and electric companies to raise bonds to cover at least at least $7 billion in debts they incurred during the crisis. And this, of course, will definitely end up directly on people's bills as these companies raise prices to pay back those who loaned them the money. The legislature rejected, however, creating a grant program that would help nursing homes, water systems, and dialysis centers make improvements to stay open during a grid failure like the one in February. Yes, that's right. You can borrow money from Wall Street, force consumers to pay for it, in order to cover the debts incurred last or earlier this year. But the Texas legislature said, nope, no way we're going to help dialysis centers stay open if we have another crisis like this. And the Texas legislature also failed to pass a bill allowing for a one-time rebate for customers on their utility bills. Now, they claim that they are going to do this, that they're going to pass it in a special session later this summer. But, I mean, one, we just have to see. And two, it gives you quite a sense of what their priorities are. The legislature advanced no reforms at all of the energy market, despite the fact that it was 100% clear that decades of warnings to increase the cold weather capacities of these various companies were not made due to the profit motives that are introduced by the way the Texas energy market runs. It was also clear that the massive price gouging during the storm that went on and played a huge role in almost bankrupting all utilities in the state was a result of the way the market was structured. But rather than address any of that, they chose to simply make a few small changes and make working people pay for them. You know, Texas legislators have been bragging this week about how this was the quote-unquote most conservative session ever. And with Republicans now claiming to represent the working class with their faux populism, it's worth noting that what they really mean when they talk about a populist agenda is actually the opposite of populism. Among other things, it means massive giveaways to corporations on the back of the working class. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah.